0: Hello this is Lunar Poetry Podcast, I'm David Turner. Today's episode is in three parts. Coming up we've got interviews with poets Nick McCower and John Hagley. And if you'd like to find out about everything we're up to then you can follow us at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook, Tumblr and Soundcloud and at Silent underscore Tongue on Twitter or subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. And yeah if you like what we do then please tell your friends. First up is Hannah Silver. I met up with Hannah at Rosemary Ranch Theatre in Haggerston in London to talk about her solo show, Schlock, which is on until November 26, 2016. There's a bit of background noise as there were some singers in the next room rehearsing an opera, but hopefully it's not too distracting. You can find links to Hannah's web presence as you can with Nick and John in the description to this episode. Here's Hannah. Hello, Hannah.
1: Hello, David. How are you doing?
0: <laughs> um, just a word of warning to anyone listening there is a uh, musical being rehearsed next door, and you may hear some opera. So, we're here today to talk about your show that's on at the moment at the Rosary yep. Branch Theatre in, is this Hoxton?
1: Yeah, in yeah, this? like Haggiston, Haggiston, well. Hoxton. Yeah. Hagerston,
0: Ho- Hoxton border. It's by the canal, anyway. It's it a is. nice pub and theatre. Um, probably the easiest thing to do is if you just explain a bit about what the show is and
1: then uh, we can chat a bit about that. Um, So it's a show called Schlock, it's a a one-woman show, uh, me, basically, and um, it started out by splicing together two very different books. So I was reading Fifty Shades of Grey, or attempting to read it, um, struggling a bit, and I started just picking out the sentences that um, shocked me, like, not because of like, the sexual content, I don't find that shocking, but the bits where she says, please don't hit me, don't like it, don't do it again. Um, and the bits where there's kind of an undercurrent kind of manipulation and abuse, basically, but it's all closed in quite a light um, way. So I think, you know, you often don't really notice it when, when you read it. But I found that quite interesting. Um, and so I started picking out words and phrases and writing them down. But I was also I've um, also been a bit obsessed with this uh, novelist called Kathy Acker, who died in 1997, and she was like, a cult feminist um, author, and she wrote by splicing together lots of different types of books. So she would take things like erotica and like true life stories from magazines and splice them together with novels and put in bits of her autobiography or bits of phone conversations with her friends, um, and splice this all together to create really strange, disturbing narratives. They were often about abuse, so that they're, you know, kind of filled with sex in a a really disturbing way. Um, So I was really interested in her as a a writer and as a person, and she died in 1997 of of breast cancer. Um, So I found myself telling her story and doing it using her writing methods, that seemed like the best way to do that. Um, So splicing together Fifty Shades of Grey and doing things like with that, um, together with her writings, together with bits of her biography, and I was exploring, the, you know, her biography, her story of how she dealt with the cancer diagnosis, and doing those sections using sign language, where right, I kind of become Kathy. Um, so, you know, it's not it's not a, a particularly kind of true um, biography of her. It's kind of about my Cathy now. It's like a character that I've, that I've created really, but that's where it came from. Um, so, so the piece deals with. Um, kind of sex and and subverting some of the language of Fifty Shades, but it's not a critique of Fifty Shades. Um, It's it's more kind of playful with that language. Um, And it becomes kind of shocking when I do things like change the word submissive to mother and dominant to child. So you get a strange narrative of a parent and a child. Um, And also I do it, I I work with a loop station, which is kind of hidden behind this big pile of pages. Um, so a lot, a lot of it is very kind of sound-based and I, I layer up vocal sounds and articulations um, and it's, so it's kind of got this level of music um, sound within it as well um, and then the sign language and the subtitles going alongside.
0: I was impressed with two elements of the show in particular and one was the, the layers of, you know, I found it really engaging and uh, stimulating in that way. There was a lot going on and I like it when shows and artists are, I can say, it sounds hugely condescending to call anyone brave. I don't mean that word, I can't think of a better word, but you know, when people are brave enough to like, just keep layering stuff up, I think it becomes, I think sometimes a risk, especially around spoken word, to make things overly simple and easy to understand and engage with and I, I like the complexity, the complexity of what you did. And secondly, actually made me want to read Fifty Shades of Grey a little bit because it sort of elevated what
1: yeah
0: I've only really spoken to one other person about Fifty Shades of Grey my aunt is a speed reader and she just ch- churns or she just rips through like um, romance novels and stuff uh, and the more titillating the better and she read Fifty Shades of and she was so disappointed like she hated it she just, anyway but you actually made me uh, through, through this elevation um, what point did the, the other elements of technology coming into this uh, work?
1: Right from the beginning, I guess, because it's when I'm writing, I mean, I write in different ways and sometimes I write plays for other people to perform and sometimes I write poetry just to be published. Um, but when I know that I'm writing for myself to perform, um, quite often I'll start working with layers of sound and using technology to do that. Quite early on it's, it's in a way it's part of my writing process um, and sometimes you know sometimes I don't know if the piece works or if the language works until I start playing around with the loop station and stripping out sounds and recording vowel sounds beneath it um, and doing all, all those things and I actually did masses of writing um, before I got technology out um, for this piece, which is can be quite unusual um, so yeah, I did, I did a load of writing while I was on, on train and then had this huge amount of text and, and had to start playing with it and laying it out on the floor and seeing if there was um, a shape to it and where the peaks and the troughs were and, um, and which bits worked in performance, which bits I could kind of strip out and develop and make into something sonically.
0: A loop, a station in that way, seems like quite a good tool to work through that process. But yeah. it also seems quite daunting as well to have that much text. Was it a completely solo process in the development in that way? Or?
1: No, really early on I had a session with David Lane, who's a great dramaturg, um, and I've worked with him previously. And that, that was really early on in my process, but he read it on, on the page and then came and saw some bits um, that I was playing with. For him, like, at that point, he was struck by how completely different it was to, to read it and then to hear it. And really the way in which something is said changes its meaning hugely. Like I can pronounce some lines in quite a light way, whereas on the page they're like, whoa, that's really heavy. <laughs> um, so I, I do have like, that's one of the things I still have fun with each night is I, I try to always say lines in a different way to, to not ever get fixed with my intonation. And that's, for me, that's a way to keep it alive every night. Um, that I'm yeah, is it like even in
0: the performances? Is it yeah. a continual lay- layering of um, trying different things? And
1: yeah, I mean the sound layers are fixed. I mean I know what I'm doing. I, I make them live every night, but I, I know what I'm doing with them, and they pretty much you know they, they pretty much stay the same. But in terms of just the intonation of each line, I try to do it differently every night. Mm. Um, like not not always but you know the majority of it because that, that's for me that's how to keep it fresh and to stop myself getting into autopilot and also because I'm I've got a background in music and I'm so I'm quite good at knowing uh, kind of learning something in terms of how it sounds so it's quite easy for me to fix the intonation and do it exactly the same every single time and I think when I started out doing this kind of work that's what I did I would very quickly fix something and then be able to replicate it perfectly um, which can be fun and you know I, I could compose and do some interesting things through doing that um, but I also realized that if I take myself out of that and force myself to say each line, find a new way of saying each line every time it, it keeps the, it keeps the material meaning something to me and it, it'll mean something slightly different to me every time I do it.
0: A couple of the things that I took away from the performance were the, the links towards um, the themes of pain and submission I thought was that? In the same way as talking about like the sort of sound and lighting elements was that a very early direction or did that develop as you or how did that develop
1: that must that was probably the, one of the first things that i had really i mean i think that's what well, you know some of the early things i did were things like doing a search on kindle for all the instances of the word pain and that's a section now in the show and i mean i did that i did it in 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 a way, for for fun, you know, I did look look for the word pain, look for the word hurt. Um, I think I did some some ones like I don't know, look for intelligent or I, I tried to kind of find. But what's the language? What's the main? What are the you know the words? It sounds that like a perfect poet's to. night in. Googling <laughs> yeah. the Words
0: pain and hurt. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think initially I thought that working with that material that I was going to get a lot more humour than I got, um, which maybe may just. You know, there's all the inner goddess stuff, and sub- you, you haven't read Fifty Shades, but no. she's constantly going on about her inner goddess and her subconscious um, and having this, these kind of like competing parts of herself arguing, and one of them sitting in a hammock, and one of them's like twiddling her thumbs behind the sofa, and the other one's you know, getting excited. and It's so drawn out that it, it becomes quite crazy, so I, I had a section where I took all of the instances of inner goddess and subconscious, and I thought that would be quite funny, but in the end it just didn't fit. I think because the piece became something else, it's, you know, it's not really a critique of, of Fifty Shades or a piss take of Fifty Shades or anything like no. that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's about this, this other character and just plays with that language.
0: Actually, yeah, I want to make sure that I'm not taking like a moral high ground here. I haven't mm. read Fifty Shades of Grey, yeah. but I haven't read Kafka either. <laughs> it would, I think it's it's easy to knock some things, isn't it? And then yeah. and, and hide the fact that you're not actually reading anything else. Either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what,
1: people do a, that a lot. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm Actually, interested to to know what audience react because obviously you've been touring this show off and on now for a little while, and maybe tell uh, explain exactly how long. But what have audience reactions been towards? Do most people just assume that you are critiquing Fifty Shades of Grey?
1: I think they do. I mean, also because um, critics and like, like, I mean, I haven't had many reviews from the London run, but particularly people talking about it around this run have gone on about ripping the pages out of Fifty Shades. Yeah. And interestingly, like, there's two reviews that say I chew out, chew the pages up, and spit them. Out and I, and I don't. <laughs> you know, I don't. I, I don't chew a page ever. I've never chewed a page of Fifty Shades of Grey, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know why. It's kind of funny, you know. When when people highlight that aspect of it, I think it sounds like I'm critiquing. It's like, oh, she's ripping it up. She hates it so much. She's ripping it up, and it's it's not really like that. It's it's a play. It's a playful thing. It's yeah. like it's a writing method. Um, yeah, it, it, it's exploring kind of the literal texture of language and words. Now, have those
0: reactions surprised you in any way?
1: Because I mean, you must have really. known, like,
0: if you were going to tear a, any book up yeah. on stage, it's
1: yeah. Yeah, so it doesn't really doesn't really surprise me, but it's definitely been highlighted. And, but it's been highlighted more in this run than it has in the past. Um, the only other place where that seemed to be the thing that they jumped on was in India. I did it in Mumbai at literature live at a literature festival uh, which was great it it was huge there I think uh, um, I had a really big audience I think quite a lot of people came to see me rip up 50 shows of great like I think that was you know and of course like that's not really what the show is and but it's okay because I get some through the door
0: (laughs) how did you get all the books
1: (laughs) um well (laughs) Um, well that's one of the other things that like around this run there was a few pieces in different papers saying that Hannah Silverman needs your copy of 50 Shows of Grey um, and I have had a few donated and yeah. sent and, and I even still I, like a few like audience members sometimes bring their copy or there's been a few like in the post to the theatre yeah. <laughs> which has been really nice so some of them have come like that I, I did a, I bought up all my local charity shops um, a while ago and then found that you know, they weren't replenishing like I literally bought them all and <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah it's just it's you know getting charity shops and you know occasional emergency buy.
0: Actually maybe next week we can talk about the elements of um, signing and subtitling and the visual element of the show and how that came about.
1: Yeah it's some, something like signing or something I've always wanted to, to do like my work has always been and still is with this show really sound based in the past I've had uh, blind people come to my sh- to my work and really really enjoy it and it's, it's worked because it, it's so sound based um, but I've always been, you know I've been aware that my my work has, has never been accessible for a deaf audience um, and so in a way it was the ult- ultimate challenge to see if I could make it accessible um and I guess I like setting myself kind of really hard challenges um, it's also that I love I, I love sign language um, and I love I guess maybe because I'm I don't know because I'm really interested in language and, and meaning and I love the fact that you know we, we go around doing these pretty empty vague gestures constantly mm. in daily life I'm doing them now um, and I love the fact that in sign language gestures become meaningful like every, every you know I, I just think it's, it's beautiful um, and I want, and I've, I discovered that it, it you know, it, it also made me write in a totally different way. So it's been amazing for me as a poet, and it's made me think about my writing really differently, and to think much more through imagery. Um, and it forces you to kind of step into the writing. Um, so I worked with Dow Jackson, or like, like known as Dazzy Jacko, and he's a deaf translator and actor. He's really, really amazing, um, and he. The way in which he was working with me was, was very much that I kind of step into the, the piece and become Cathy and see everything that she sees. Um, you know, and often a few lines of text would become one glance in, in performance um, or other, other ways around. I mean, it, it totally tran- transforms it. And I do, I mean, in the, in the text, in the spoken version, um, I have an image of a child and then an image of cancer. And in language, um, in spoken language, you know, cancer and child. Are very very different things, Um, but in sign language, if they're both kind of inside the body and growing inside your body, you can actually do a sign that can be both. Okay. Um, So rather than kind of making that distinction and then trying to kind of put them together somehow in language, like in the in the sign language, it can be both at once, um, which I found quite exciting. Yeah, the part of the show
0: where you're talking about the cancer um, was one. Yeah, it's pretty pretty powerful because it, it. what I liked about the elements of signing is that it does, even even as a hearing member of the yeah. audience, it it forces you to focus in some in a show where there's quite a lot going on. It's quite a powerful tool to get, pull people into your body language, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah. I guess it makes makes people, and I think it's it's about looking at all different ways of writing and different ways of of using language and having those layers going on at the same time. And um, I mean, quite early on as well, I, I talked to various people who thought I wouldn't be able to do it and I, I wouldn't be able to sign well enough and uh, you know said but it's so hard to get a deaf audience to come why would they want to come and see a hearing uh, artist you know sign um, but then when I worked with, with Dow he had a um, kind of slightly different attitude towards it and and um, kind of restored my um, kind of belief in, in wanting to do it and saying, well, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter if I don't reach a large deaf audience, it's really, you know, it's a British language, it's, it's incredible and it's really exciting to share that with a hearing audience as well. Um, so I've tried to kind of do both things, you know, kind of use it in a creative way because, you know, look at the poetry of it and look at the poetry of, of using the body and thinking that, no, this works for a hearing audience, um, but also to try and go all the way through and think about what a deaf audience member's experience of it is. Um, with the subtitling and with using images as well, and I worked with the artist Tom Defreston. So in a way, he was translating my soundscapes into image. Um, so I've, I, yeah, I've thought a lot about whether it is accessible for, for a deaf audience member, and I can't answer that perfectly because I don't know, I, I don't have that experience. But hope, you know, hopefully throughout this run, I'll get some feedback and find out. And I know that it, you know, I'm, I'm very sure that it's not at all um, perfect, and there's so many things I could do better, but it's it's a really exciting thing to kind of learn about Mm -hmm. and learn more about in the future.
0: I'm also interested in the elements of your show that through moving towards accessibility become inaccessible as well, because you've got elements of the show where it's purely signing, and I I can't understand any sign, so visually stimulating and interesting, but I don't know what the meaning is, I don't know what the context is of that, and how important was that to go the other you know yeah, go the yeah. other way as well
1: well when i started out doing the show i actually had more sections that were just signed and not subtitled as well so it was even harder <laughs> but i you know i got feedback from hearing audience that they they wanted to know what i was doing i thought okay fair enough this is the majority of my audience actually so and it's 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 fun and interesting to know, to to kind of start to figure out what the signs mean um, but i think but what, i mean i don't know i mean we we watch dance and we don't Go oh, but I don't know what that movement. <laughs> what did that move mean? You know, and I love dance, and um, and I love the way it triggers images in my imagination as as I watch it. It triggers words and and thoughts. So I mean, I think if in those sections, I, it's also kind of license for the audience member to make have their own interpretations of what it is. And that they're quite small sections, and I think there's bits in it that you you probably can figure out what I'm doing because it's not. BSL, it's more like visual vernacular. I I mean, I quite enjoy that going, actually, no, you just have to look at me. (laughs) You just have to like, look at my body and you know, you don't have to crack it. You don't have to like decode it. Um, But I think you can get a sense of what the emotion is, uh, what the, um, you know, what some of the signs are. And even if you have your own interpretation of it, I think that's exciting. And I'm always interested in, in opening up parts of performance um, to enable the audience's imagination to, to come in and, and to go off on, mm. in different directions, potentially. But I've never really liked work that's told me what it means all the way through.
0: No, and, and that's sort mm. of what I was alluding to earlier when I really horribly used the word brave, and I'm going to use it again because I stumped for a better word. But I re- I, I do enjoy work that does say clearly to you at the beginning, you're not really here to understand all this fully because I think there's too much of a leaning on art productions well, in any form to be and I think maybe we probably can't go down this route too deeply but because of the methods of funding in this country there's a there's a pressure on artists to be fully understood and through accessibility and they sort of go hand in hand I wonder how much of that is to do with it but wondered whether it was an influence of the dramaturg that you worked with, uh, David Lane, is that? Yeah. yeah. I, I think that maybe because of my previous work and experience working with like multi-screen film installations, I saw a lot of links with that. Uh, there's one piece in particular I worked, with in, uh, worked on in Norway a few years ago by an Icelandic artist, Aya Lisa Attila, and she works with um, multi-screen cinematic installations. The screens are so big and positioned in such a way that you can never see all the action at the same, at once, so you've got a choice. You can sit there and take it in in parts, or you can go back and watch each screen, you know, over the course of seven hours you can watch each film and try and piece it together, but in no way are you ever going to see everything that's happening at the same time. Um, what am I trying to get to? I'm projecting heavily my own thoughts onto your work, but it, do, do any of those things ring true with the, the way the, the piece came about or was it just a consequence of adding elements?
1: I, mean, I think this, the screen stuff is, is really a consequence of trying to make it accessible for um, deaf and hard of hearing audience members. Um, really, it's like it's not necessarily an aesthetic or a thing that I'm really into. Um, I mean, I do like the way the way a loop station works. Anyway, is through kind of repetition and mm. layering up. So it's it is something that does kind of add layers. Actually, of, just of to clarify, sound. when
0: I linked it to film work, it wasn't directly because you use screens. It was uh, um, a connection with the layering of yeah. Things, so that's things, yeah. that's
1: that's where I could yeah connect with that. I think that, that I don't always write in a very kind of linear top of the page to bottom of the page kind of way. It's much more of a kind of looping and adding a bit you know colliding this line with that line that I said a bit earlier um and and looking at what sound does I mean and going back to the kind of meaning question um I mean I I also kind of want the work to um you know I really I'm really not interested in in whether people can walk out and go oh what she was doing was not this and it was about this and this is how she did it and although that's um I think quite a tempting thing for people to do and it's something that you know reviewers kind of want to write the synopsis of of the show i think that's quite a difficult thing to do in this case but i'm much more interested in how people feel afterwards yeah. Um, you know what what it does to your insides, and what it does emotionally, and what the sound layers of the sound kind of does to somebody, or the images. You know, it's really not supposed to be an intellectual exercise that has to be kind of cracked <laughs> by the audience. Um, it's, it makes me kind of uncomfortable as well. And I see like beats or reviews kind of going on about how clever it is, or how clever I am. <laughs> and I was like, it's it's not. You know, <laughs> I mean. Like, um, it's just that I, you know, I made it in this particular way that layers things up and, and plays around with language. But it's not about trying to be clever.
0: I really like physical performance, and I think sometimes that there's a mistaken belief that you, people can make spoken words completely accessible because language isn't very accessible, you know you know, if you don't speak English, none of this would be in any way accessible anyway, right, you know, and, right. and it's quite a lot of people in the world that <laughs> can't engage with the work. You know? Yeah,
1: and it's interesting that the, I mean, the word accessible, I, I mean, I'm sure people have written loads of fascinating stuff about that, but the word accessible, you know, what does that really mean? You know, it doesn't mean um, making something very um, simplistic, you um, and straightforward. That, I mean, and people often use accessible in, in that sense. I think. What I mean, making it something that um, people, different people, can access. Whether that's physically access, which you can't in this venue, unfortunately, mm. it's it's got horrible staircase. Wait, lovely venue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's well, no, the It's an important small... thing to point out, isn't yeah, it? Even though if yeah. you're
0: trying to put on an accessible production, a lot of theatre spaces exist in this way where they're not. The venues aren't accessible. It's right. a very important debate about like. Yeah. Whether the work's accessible, but the venue isn't.
1: Yeah, right? it's it's difficult. It might be accessible uh, to some extent f- for a deaf audience member, but that doesn't mean that it's um, easy to understand. And you know, there's different levels. Like, well, it was all kind of there, um, but it c- would be very hard to say, oh, yeah, you you know, you got it all, or this is the same experience as for, for a hearing person, because because it, it's not. So I know. I, I think interesting that difference between accessible, as in you can access what I've made. <laughs> or accessible as in you can really, really understand very easily what I've made quickly.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: but, but like I was saying, it's not about um, understanding in that way, it's more, e- can you experience it? And I suppose that's what, to me, yeah, accessibility should be more about. Can you access the experience of the yeah. show, the experience that I'm Absolutely. trying to make?
0: Because otherwise you're in danger of patronizing people, aren't you? If, you, if it looks like you're, sim- if, if, you're yeah, if your definition of accessibility is simplifying and, and making uh, dumbing things down, yeah, it's going to be very clear yeah. in the work that yeah. that's, that was for your
1: work. Yeah, I mean sometimes we, you know people use that term. We you know within spoken word, say, or oh, spoken word needs to be accessible. You need to understand it first, hearing, blah, blah, you know, etc. Um, and you know people have good arguments for that, but it's it's not the kind, not the way I'm interested in working. I suppose because it's for me, it's not about um, understanding in terms of cracking the meaning of something immediately, but more understanding, as in experiencing, um, communicating something, even if that's. An emotion.
0: We should probably wrap up with, if anyone wants to and they should definitely want to, and they should definitely come and see your show, it's on until the 26th, is that right? Yes, yeah,
1: it's on until the 26th. 26th
0: of November 2017, in case you are listening. 2016. Just in... <laughs> do that bit again. No, I'll leave it in, I don't care. <laughs> oh, um, I'm making an idiot hard, myself. Hard, hard enough
1: <laughs> performing every night for three weeks, you'll be do it for a year. <laughs> um, come <to laughs> see West the show. West End Transfer coming up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, there's, some, <laughs> say, there's some I was there's some post show there's some post show discussions oh, next I'll week as well. Oh, on um, actually that. there's yeah. so there is one on um, accessibility, there's one on um, yeah, one that kind of asks why would a deaf audience member want yeah. to see a hearing artist sign badly, which is yeah. kind of tongue in cheek, but um, and there's there's one on mainstream poetry and one on feminist art and one on censorship and yeah. fifty shows of gray.
0: This chat's going out on the twenty first, so you've got five days, get your act together and get and see Hannah. And shock. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you. Next up is Nick McCullough. We met up at the poetry school in Lambeth in South London to chat about professionalism, Nick's development as a writer, and poetry's place in society. Nick's new collection, The Kingdom of Gravity, will be published by People Tree Press. Here's Nick.
3: Home Court Advantage. What if there is another world? where everybody wins. Not like on TV. Here's something I've been working on. What if your local basketball courts was a theater where one man could stand up against the city, two men against the nation, three men against the world, for as long as they wanted with the sun in their hands. In a version of life where the bones beneath the skin and the salt and iron in the blood can rise to a valency merely by looking over one shoulder the earth and its symbol landscape under your will, the day in its shining whizzing by in flashback. At first, you are a shadow, bent knees, bent body, all breath. Your sneaker soles are dancing feet as the body perspires in its rotation, jostling like some boat at sea emitting heat. Then you are a smudge of red moving to a break sample, approaching the baseline, the rock in the palm of your hand oscillates like a scarlet ping pong ball between you and the tarmac, the gray asphalt in its own horizon. You take turns being yourself, being someone else, as people watch from the sidelines. You face a pair of eyes, the opponent trying to lean in and become your second skin. The future offers itself to you faster than you thought, a blurred possibility of life as you elevate the first step, a certain turbulence, and you can be alone there in the impossible, reaching for the rim, a version of hope.
0: Thank you very much, Nick. Um, thanks for joining me today in this, it's, I think, it's slightly echoey room in the poetry school, but hopefully it's not going to turn out too badly. How are you doing?
3: I'm good, man. It's um, been good to meet you. Yeah,
0: I'm glad you've found time as well, because um, along with a couple of names that I won't embarrass them now, but you seem to be a pretty hard working poet and trying to find time to sort all different things in. But um, I really appreciate you coming along. Actually, because I'm just trying to work out what we should start talking about, it's always the most difficult bit about interview but because we've met at the poetry school today maybe we could talk about your own development as a writer and what you what methods
3: you use and what you think is important to continue to develop um well i think um being a writer is a journey of self actualization it's hard to accept being a writer at first it's just a hobby and then at some point i wanted to make it more than just a hobby so um, i remember when i was um, a young performance poet. I used to, uh, work with, uh, many other poets you might know, Jacob Samuel Rose, Cat Francois, Roger Robinson, you know, would perform, you know, would be on the circuit, you know, at, at, at poetry nights. There used to be this great poetry night, um, um, at the Dog Star, run by Fats McKellar. Okay. And there were loads of other nights we used to just, literally just, like pilgrims travel from spoken word event to spoken word (laughs) event and that was okay when you were just you know it it was just a hobby but the minute I started to take this on as a career where I was leading workshops and also wanted to create my own work I had to find a way of keeping that alive so the poetry school was one of those places that allowed me to work on my craft it allowed me to meet new writers um it's actually where I was part of a writing collective with Malaika's Kitchen. Um, it was actually where uh, Malaika's Kitchen used to meet. So, well, one of the venues. We used to also meet at the South Bank Centre. We also used to meet at, initially at Malaika's Kitchen House every Friday. But when it became more of a, a tangible, I like guess, serious thing, because it wasn't just us and our friends wanting to do it, it was also other, other writers, the space became an important place every Friday. And for a while, I mean, Malaika led it, Roger Robinson led it, Jacob Sandler-Rose led it. And for a while, I led it for a while. So it was uh, it was important to me to help the writers who were my peers at the time, but also other young writers come up, you know, people like Inua Ellams, you know, to name but a few names.
0: Yeah, Malaika's Kitchen gets named, uh, mentioned a lot on this yeah. uh, podcast. The more people I speak to, the more, um... I realised how important that space was and still how many people have passed through but like yeah, yeah but. they still meet
3: here It's um it's six degrees of separation if you know somebody they probably know Malaika yeah or they probably have been a, um or know somebody who's in malika's kitchen it's an important space to grow to build your voice uh, i think it allowed me to build my own personal voice build your confidence build your reading many writers underestimate the importance of reading not just things that you like, but things that you don't like, things that you don't understand, things beyond your realm of thinking, you know.
0: And is it writing groups or those kinds of uh, methods of meeting and and talking about work, is that what leads you to do? Because you do a lot of work with young writers, and actually I shouldn't say young writers because I don't like that description, new writers Mm -hmm. of any age. Um, Do you feel an obligation to do it because of having had that benefit yourself?
3: I don't, I don't think... I don't know if it's... It's probably just in my nature. I don't think it's an obligation. So actually,
0: obligation is always too strong a yeah, I didn't quite mean it like that, but...
3: It's like planting a tree, you know. Um, you, you don't just plant a tree and then walk away. You, you, you want to build a forest. I want to be a good writer, but I want to be a good writer among other great writers. And um, I don't want to leave a situation worse than when I found it. So I hope that when my time is done as a writer, there'll be avenues for other writers... That weren't necessarily there for us when we were starting out in this process, um, and I think it's very it's vital to because there's no real direct pathway to be a poet or to be a writer of any of any description. There's no oh you know you should do this then you do that and then this will work. And I think we have to find a way to create those internal avenues and to create structures that actually allow a writer to develop, but also allow, allow a writer to to live. You know, it's it's a it's a vocation, but it's it's an important one. You know, it's you know we don't have a a poet laureate just for the fun of it. You know, many important occasions are celebrated through poetry. You know, a death is celebrated with a poem. You know, a, a birth is celebrated with a poem. A wedding, you know, these are are important occasions in the in 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 the human experience, and it's important that we take that we as the writers take ourselves seriously. You know.
0: Are they the only times when poetry shows itself as being really important, do you think?
3: I think that's the times when the world at large identifies with poetry. They, they, I think poetry sits, it sits all over our society. It, it moves through it um, fluidly. But I think at, at these, these types of occasions, we acknowledge that we need something beyond the usual use of language mm. uh, to express our joy, our, our fear, our pain it's not i mean it's something that everyone can do merely because we all speak the language but it's so added, but also it's it's something that needs to, that needs to be mastered mm. do you know what i mean you know i, I can cut <laughs> i mean i can cut meat but i i can't be i'm not i can't be a surgeon <laughs> you, see <what> I'm <laughs> yeah. you know you're going to have to you're going to have to school me on that one and and i think poets in the same way have to have to realize you know i can write a poem but i actually want to write better poems to read better poems it does something, it's an important vocation, i take it seriously.
0: Actually, since we've come back to th- this idea of challenging yourself and trying to, to learn, maybe we could talk a bit more about like what you were actually up to today and how that course is running. Um, yeah, I'm,
3: um, I'm actually on uh, Mimi uh, versification course. We're in our third semester of a, of a three semester series. Um, it's been tough, It's been it's been eye-opening. I can see how it's affected. What it, well, it, her course came at the right time. It's it's a highly pursued course. You have to, you know, I, I I was on a waiting list. It Took me four years to get on board, and and even with this course, I'm only merely touching the surface of what versification is. How how does one write upon? What form do they use? What does delineation do? Um, conversations that we have in normal workshops, but uh, Mimi really just helps us see the the next layer it's pretty much like sitting with an oracle and this yeah it's been very helpful so, um, and I enjoy my our group is um, quite a tight knit unit uh, very supportive
0: and we were talking briefly earlier before we started recording that the the general the sort of gist of the course is that you're encouraged to try different forms uh, oh, verse first uh, yeah. form. yeah but, I mean, but also given some sort of indication of how to perhaps do it correctly
3: <laughs> yes yeah I mean I mean there's I mean, with with anything, there's so many different ways to skin a cat. But like, like Mimi really does, you know, she gives you a really good de- a definition of what, say, for example, sonnets. We looked at sonnets. We looked at villanelles. She gives you really good examples of contemporary ones, of of old, um, their their origins. We get an origin story, you know, um, and then we go to work at looking at what it actually takes to do one. So you actually have to, you know, every two weeks we have to bring in a body of work. challenging you know sometimes you you can see yourself avoiding it because you know you have to you know in this day and age it's easier well I don't know if it's easier but we we deviate towards free verse and uh, she was showing us actually free verse in itself as a form and you have to understand its boundaries and its limitations and its rules and it's been good to to really get a comprehensive understanding of verse Mm. in that way I'd say a lot of my poems now for probably in the last two years well, a no, year and a half I have to thank because I've been on two of her courses advanced poetry and versification I have to thank coming to some kind of learning and schooling with um, an advanced poet.
0: Yeah, because I, I mean, we touched on it briefly earlier before we started recording as well but even if you are minded to continually push yourself and want to try and improve that's maybe a bit of a grandiose way of saying it but like just trying to challenge yourself constantly it can still be hard to find avenues to go down and, and sort of tips and information about things there's a lot of received wisdom around writing in form isn't there you get examples passed down just because they've been passed down by someone else and to get proper insight into why a form might be used and it's important to know its limitations in order to yeah. experiment with things, isn't it? So yeah, I mean,
3: I, I'll be honest. I, I feared form um, partly, if I'm honest, because of my ignorance to it. And then when you become to understand it, you fear it because you're like, ah, oh, can I do it? Because you you're learning, but it, it's kind of like learning how to walk. I guess I'm in my infant stages with with form, but I'm enjoying the work that it brings and the ways that it makes you think and the possibilities it shows you the possibility of language because there is normal language our everyday speech and then there's what poetry can do and that's another language i want to delve into that you know i don't want to just be throwing platitudes or just common day phrases i want to say what else can i do like and how else can i connect because at the end of the day i want to i'm trying to make it available to many different types of readership you know there are people who who love poetry but they've never they've never heard of it before like oh, what is this is this poetry and then there are people who like who have an African sensibility I want to I want to, I want to read into, I want to talk into that Then are not are my own personal likes. I like like that poem I just read basketball I, I want to talk to to athletes you know there's you know Learn how I think to it's do also
0: it. important to remember isn't it that even if you want to talk to quote unquote normal people yeah. you can still do that with form it's yes. a bit it's oh, a bit yeah. very condescending to assume that if you want to talk to the masses you have to simplify stuff like, uh, well, uh, to yeah
3: a everything's a form i mean we, we see form all the time but when we don't disrupt it so you know you know getting on a train that's a form you know the trains look a certain way we don't go hmm I don't know if I can get into this uh, i'm free. I'm free verse, uh you know but um, you know we you know you you, you get your cereal boxes in a, in this square packet. That's a form. You like you we don't go. Hmm. Why isn't this round? I yep. don't I don't understand. So form isn't. It's not. It, it, it's not made to be inhibitive. What it's made to do is to, it, it's a limitation in one sense, but it makes other things available in another. And uh, and I think that's the second that second part we often miss out as as young or even some experienced writers that we miss out, like, what this form makes available. You know, when a martial artist says, you know what, I'm going to devote a year of my life to making my body um, stronger and more alive, there is a gain there. What, what he loses is that, he can't, oh, can't be donuts every day or, you know, whatever, but he gains something. And, and similarly, with form, it allows, it, it gives a, mus, a muscularity to your work, but also at the same time, it gives... A flexibility to you, there's more that you can do um, in the creation of a poem. I think we'll take a second reading, please, Nick. Oh, cool! All right, so let me just uh, see more carefully here. How a city vanishes all it takes is two men on a bike, a convoy in the rear view mirror, some land, a shortage of visas, the closing of embassies, a night lowering its curtain of curfew and some C4 to turn a dirt highway into a makeshift airstrip. Out come the men in uniform, following the flare of a flashlight towards life lurking in the long grass. White soldiers with foreign words that taste too much like caution huddled around a wireless, waiting for orders, keeping their voices down. A war reporter, tourist and volunteer with the same faces just cleared the checkpoint said they were on safari, hence the cameras. Tonight, they will make the weekend edition of the people. Tomorrow, our city, or some version of it, will be as familiar as the dark side of the moon.
0: Thank you very much. Just two points I wanted to touch on about what we're talking about first of all, and then we'll move on to what you've got coming up. I'm just interested to know, and we don't have to get into it too deep because it's a bit of a sort of endlessly cyclical conversation anyway but how you were talking about sort of wanting to become more professional as a a poet and and writer how do you define that what do you believe makes you a professional poet
3: rather than a hobbyist Uh, using myself as my example uh, ten years ago I was working for the bank and um, every evening or as many evenings as I could in a week I'd reach out to my friends who are also poets, or my friends who weren't poets, and invite them to either to come with me to poetry readings. I would write a poem as the one I feel, inspired by whatever moved me. You know, they liked it, I liked it. There was, there was nothing. And then it moved from that to wanting to make it a career, something, in other words, making it something that I could, that I can earn money from, that I could make a difference in the world with, so I think to to do that, there needs to be a level of professionalism. Um, on one level, I need to find a way to create better work, or generate more work, or generate work that isn't just inspired by how I'm feeling on a certain day. So that might be commissions. How do I become the writer that they want to write a commission? How do I become the writer that leads a poetry workshop? So I had to learn how to lead workshops, which is what I did for a while with Jacob when um, him and my friend um, Peter Khan were running the London Teenage Poetry Slam, there we were working with um, um, several poets were, um, were working with kids, teaching them slam poetry uh, in schools, we all had a school, we were attached to it, we worked with a class of kids, we chose eight kids from that class, they had to learn two poems that had to be three minutes long they had to compete with one another on a community building day and then eventually had to final and then the, the winning school would get to go to Chicago. So, you know, how do you become the kind of coach that can empower kids who probably don't, have never heard of poetry, probably don't like poetry, prefer music, don't like music. How do you inspire them and sometimes even turn their lives around totally to become the people who are on stage, who are talking in front of a crowd are seeing a possibility for themselves beyond the possibilities that many people around them have so there's that and then there's how do you have longevity so you you know the poetry scene is a small space but the international poetry world is a large space how do you have how do i as an african poet living in london have a dialogue with african poets around the world african poets in africa uh, poets in america how does that work translate for example into my one-man show you know so uh, you know the skills i started to learn as a poet i started developing them to make a one-person show you know so how i see the profession is like you know what how, how do i become more business like to be a person who could, when i look at my tax return i can say this work here this money i earned here was through my work as a poet and playwright or you know an educator within the, within the field does that make
0: sense? Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I won't, uh, <laughs> by, by not answering, it's not yeah. a, a lack of engagement. It's just, I, it, I honestly do feel it's just one of those things you it could go backwards and forwards. Okay. Like all night. So it, okay. it was more that I just wanted to hear okay. how you define it. Just, actually, just uh, as an explanation, it, and for those that may have just tuned into this episode, for, for, first off, if they go back in the archive a few episodes, we've got a discussion led by Paul of around around uh, sort of transparency between artists about fees and money and, and a large part of that conversation was about what it means to be professional mm-hmm. and should we aim to be professional you know and so it's just interesting to add other people's uh... I mean I had, to, I had to do a talk
3: for uh, I did a workshop for the Arts Council uh, where I had to work with uh, they invite me to talk to um, writers of colour about applying to the Arts Council and what hit me is a surprising shock is that many artists don't apply And I think part of that, um, and I I put myself in this at one point is naivety. We don't actually know the game. We don't know how to move as a professional artist or what does that take? What does it take to make an application? Cause we we live in a different field. I'm not like a doctor who gets paid a certain fee every year, regardless of what they do. I have, I have to rely on commissions. I have to rely on workshops. I have to rely on funding to build projects. I have to design projects. So on some level, you're a project manager as well as being a poet. Uh, at the same time, you have to develop yourself just as a, as going back to the doctor's analogy, or even a you know a mechanic. You have to keep learning new skills. So how do I keep my my skills relevant? And like how do I keep my reading relevant? My library up to date. My um, even your 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 health. You know, because um, I'm self-employed, I I don't have a you know. I mean, we have the NHS, but like, how do you make sure that your health is right? I can't. If somebody hires me. I can't be sick and so say I can't do it today. If they hire me for today, they need me. So all of that are levels of professionalism that sometimes, uh, actually, a lot of times people misconstrue. So a lot of times they say, "How do you earn your money?" Well, I earn my money by being professional, by creating opportunities, by networking, by going to events and talking to people who might inspire me with ideas that you know that can push what can be done through poetry
0: it's quite often missed isn't it the fact that to be a professional creative involves quite a lot of creating your own work doesn't it yes. you know if you're not pushing yourself yeah um you, there is there, i think and i think this time obligation isn't too strong a word there is an obligation on us to create opportunities for ourselves i mean there's definitely a worthwhile and very important conversation to be had about why certain people feel like that there are barriers in front of them and that, that conversation needs to be had but I think in general as as artists we need to be more open to the fact that we've got to get up and and make people aware that there are there is work to be done because you know especially in this current economic climate there are not people wandering around with bags of money asking for poems mm-hmm. <laughs> necessarily there is money there but you might have to suggest to these people that put, you know the, your practice is worthwhile of of their
3: investment, you know? I mean, and also you can understand a lot of people don't understand the the like. I'd say the importance of poetry. So, you know, when we when we were running the London Teenage Poetry Slam, people didn't understand how how is this project transforming lives. But you know, many of those young people have gone on to do great things. I mean, one of the uh, she was just an intern on the young poet and, and, and I mean, young London Teenage Slam, London Teenage Poetry Slam ended up being one of the second Young Poet Laureate, you know? Mm. So you don't know who you're meeting or where, where you're meeting these people or what they can they can end up being. So I think professional, you know, professionalism is, is, is needed in any field, but I think particularly in the field of poetry, it's something that helps in a lot of those gray areas. Cause there's a lot of gray area inside of the world of poetry. So in the music industry, they have a lot more structure. You know, I can write a song, I can distribute my my song and I can get paid, or I can remix a song and I can get paid for that. Boy, as, as a poet, there's there's no hard and fast rule. Um, fees are negotiable. You know what is my right rate that I can charge? How much do I need to earn? When do I file my tax return? All of that information. Or one of those boring, but once you handle it, it makes you be able to be there year in year out. And I and I you know I want to make a difference. I want to. want my son, and daughter to look in my eye and say, you know what. I'm really proud of my own what my father does and you know what i want to go for my dreams and their dreams might not be my dream but you know i want them to see that um a that language is is important because I, I believe it is it, it is it is the universal connector it is the universal solution without language we are at, we are at war we are in confusion um but b also i want them um to enjoy it you know like it's something that that is to be enjoyed i think when language is, a, as, is, is shared, it is an intimate connection. Um, just
0: a bit wary of time, so I just want to move on to give you the chance to talk about what you've got coming up. And you mentioned earlier that you've got a book. Okay.
3: Yeah, I'll, um, oh yeah, I've got a few things in the pipeline. So um, um, I've been working with uh, Goldsmiths on a project and uh, Creative Works London called uh, the Black um, Blackmatic Experience, where we're looking at... Um, you know, a Metic is a person, uh, it's, a, it's a Roman term, you know, for a slave, but when they were um, freed, they, they had the rights of, of free people, but not the full rights of a citizen. So I wanted to find out what's the black Metic experience for poets in England, and I compared it with some poets in America, we've put some videos together, we're going to be editing those and putting them out. So I'm working alongside Goldsmiths with that, and I've been the creative entrepreneur there. I'm also working on my first full collection, which will be out on People Tree Press in April, um, called The Kingdom of Gravity. Um, the last poem I read you was one of the poems from that collection. Um, a while back, um, I'm a first-generation um, The Complete Works fellow, and a while back, while I was on The Complete Works, um, I started working on my first one-man show, called My Father and Other Superheroes toured quite widely um across england but i um, in about um, well time of of, of, of overreach i'll have just performed it in new york for the united solo solo festival which is the largest solo festival in the world and we'll
0: put a link to the to the website that yeah for the show just in case other dates become available and of course um I'll endeavour to retweet and share if you've got anything coming up on social media anyway. So yeah. we'll keep people abreast of it. If yeah, you're, I'll be doing yeah. a gig out there because I did
3: a pamphlet called um, The Second Republic, which is part of an anthology series uh, called uh, ne- um, Seven New Gen- uh, Next Generation Poets, African Poets. Um, I was in the first generation along with people like Orson Shire. So I'm doing a performance for that the publisher there when I'm in America. And when I come back, Kalalu. Um, which is a poetry journal uh, in America they are having their annual conference which will be in Oxford on the from the 23rd to the 28th and um, I'll be reading doing a reading there on the Thursday which I think is the 26th of November 26th of November yeah great but it's all on the website yeah. so check
0: it out. yeah like I said I'm a bit worried at of time so I think we're gonna have to wrap up and we'll finish with another reading if that's okay
3: sure yeah sure all right so let me give you the um, The title poem from the book, if that's called Jim. It's called The Kingdom of Gravity and it will be out on People True Press. If I can find it, there we go here. The Kingdom of Gravity. We are not Alexander who conquered worlds, giving them new tongues, but we share a story of a ship resting on an African river, unbuckling at its shore, awakened by the night's cold hard rain, staring at the face of the Nile as it reminds you, you are a hawk. Silent in the voice of a midnight universe. What makes a man name a city after himself? Asked bricks to be bones, asking the wind to breathe, like the lungs of the night, asking the nights to come closer, to speak to you as a tribe, asking the tribe to sleep, asking sleep to loosen language, asking language to dream, come close to me. Can you not see that I am in search of fire, the unshapen song of light? In my mouth is a name, hovering like smoke, spoken to me by the oracle. Like others, I was in search of a forest, a place to call home. But what can I tell you about the kingdom, about having the world at your feet? When you have seen all of Earth's boundary, you will crave mirrors, searching for them in streams. And when the river looks back at you, how will you be sure that nothing is lost? Thanks very much, Nick. Thanks again for joining us. Ah, It's been a pleasure. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing it online.
0: We'll finish off with a chat with one of my favourite performers, John Hegley. This section begins with two songs and ends with two poems just before John pops back up to read a final poem for a friend. So stay tuned right through to the end. Here's the
4: wonderful John Hegley. Well, this, is, uh, this is a song about Jimmy Greaves.
2: It's not much of a planet. But everybody leaves There's not a lot Jimmy, Jimmy used to be his turn of speed He left defences in a daze Now he rents his turn of phrase And when I turn on my TV Jimmy's there, my spirit's raised And when I'm in a blazing round And I'm in the process of rolling up my sleeves I just think of Greavesy gre 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 And he relieves me More and more it grieves that Is what this country needs He's the man to sow the seeds of sanity He's on the ball, he's got a message for us all. He can help humanity to heal itself, to haul itself from this self-destructive stupor. He's what you call a trooper. I think he's blinking super He's a trooper, super duper So don't you be a party pooper Just give me Jimmy Graves People say that I'm loopy They think I'm nothing but a greasy groupie And I tell them you're not fit to wash Jimmy Greaves' mustache. a Sunday needs a roast I need you like an ocean needs a coast I need you like a doggy needs a lamp post to be a damn post I need you like a copper needs a crook I need you like a cranny needs a nook I need you like a lookalike needs somebody to look like I need you I really do need you I need you Like a novel needs a plot I need you Like the greedy need a lot I need you Like a hovel needs a certain level Of grottiness to qualify I need you Like bone needs marrow I need you like straight needs an arrow. I need you like the broadest bean, needs something else on the plate before it can participate in what you might describe as a decent meal. Well I need you like a zoo needs a giraffe, I need you like a psycho needs a path, I need you like King Arthur, needed a table that was more than just a table for one. like sandpaper, needs some wood to nuzzle. I need you like a dot-to-dot puzzle, needs more than one dot, unless it's not to be taken very seriously. Oh, I need you like a kiwi, need a fruit, I need you like a wee-wee, need a root out of the body. I need you like nodding, needed little ears, just for the contrast. I need you like a cappuccino needs froth. I need you like a candle needs a moth. If it's gonna burn its wings off,
0: excellent. Thanks, John. Cheers. Uh, um, Thanks for joining us. Who's we? I was going to say that I've I've caught in this position of, ever since I started this project, I've been using the plural for the podcast series, and it is, strictly speaking, us, because it's me and my partner Lizzie that make most of the interviews, although it is mainly me, and Lizzie offers more emotional support than she does, editing help, but I sort of... Actually, one of the things that yeah, put it like that. One of the things that attracted me most to spoken word when I started a couple of years ago was that sort of feeling of community and everyone being really welcoming when you yep. come to read for the first time. And it yep. sort of felt like it should be everybody's series, mm-hmm. as long as I get to make all the decisions. Sort of oh, like I, that. I understand. <laughs> um, actually, it's quite a good start because I wanted to. I had a note. Here and I couldn't quite work out how to form it into a question. But when I first started reading, I was sort of wondering because I had no frame of reference how to sort of read so in public. So you had no friends. Yeah. Well, that, that was sort of, <laughs> I was desperately trying to impre- impress people. <laughs> um, I had no frame of reference for how to read in public. I'd not really seen much of that stuff. And then when I, I kept hearing this voice, and I realised I was sort of doing a bit of an impression of you, I think. It was either going to be that or Victoria Wood because yeah. these were the voices running through yeah. my head. Um, and then I obviously tried to convince myself that I wasn't copying anyone and in actual fact we just had the same references. <laughs> <laughs> um, what voices were most attracted you as when you were younger? I was just trying to think of what informs the way you speak um, and the way you deliver.
4: Well, Mr Brennan, our teacher, read out... Uh, Tarantella here, Belloc's poem, and I just I wish I could hear again how he read it out. Um, and so there were I suppose, those, the words on the page. I think you'd be hard pressed not to be able to get rhythmed up with those mm-hmm. words, you know, the, the tedding and the spreading of the straw for a bedding and the fleas that tease in the high Pyrenees. So there's almost a, that's almost a voice sort of without anybody speaking it, but sort of, uh, in terms of persons, Spike Milligan. Uh, when I was a youngster, um, but I don't know how much I heard of him doing poems, though, because again, it was reading John Cooper Clarke. But the first time I saw John Cooper Clarke's stuff was in um was in the NME actually, rather than again before hearing him, mm. and I thought this is fantastic. So that was I reckon that was about seventy nine. So
0: you were guess... still able to pick up the rhythm even from
4: the... Well, it wasn't just or... the rhythm; it was the voice in terms of also the voice of the vo- um. A poetry that was pop, 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 Mm. in the best way that pop can be. Yes, yeah. Uh, I'm just trying to think of voices. I heard, many years later, heard Edwin Morgan's version of Serrano de Bergerac in Glasgow rhyming dialect. That was fantastic to hear that. I heard a song... I think it was Georges Bresson, do you say? I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced, but I heard that. Le croquant le, le croquante. Le croquante. Um, I heard that in the 90s, and I thought that was amazing hearing that. And hearing that, I think they're obviously different words. I don't know what it means, <laughs> right? Yeah. But hearing that, that just hearing, I remember hearing those two things. That was a really important, hearing that. And also, when I was at university... There was a company called Red Ladder, and they came to the university. and I remember one of them doing it in one of the speeches, and there they all were writing, is mighting. And I really liked that.
0: Actually, when yeah, when I was younger, I used to at night I used to train uh, tune my radio into what I assumed at that point was French radio. It could have been yeah. Belgian, but it, yeah. it, was, it sounded French, and I spent I can't I don't understand any French, but I just spent most of my time wondering whether it was supposed to rhyme in that way, whether it was mm. supposed to be that kind of lyrical sound around mm. it. But it's yeah, it's nice having that sort of... just it having that seeming nonsense to you. Well, it, it's music, isn't it? Isn't yes,
4: it? yeah. Because you could say, in terms of meaning, music is nonsense. Mm. You could, I mean, but it's nonsense. It's nonsense. Yes, yeah. Oh. And when I went to performing in Colombia at the Medellin, Medellin <laughs> festival. And I heard a chap called Cesar Lopez perform, Lopez, I think, I don't know if he is, but he was an amazing, a Chilean I think he is. And his, I couldn't understand a word of what he says. What he said, but he conjured up n- nights in the city with his words. Um, and he signed a book for me. And I'm, one, one day I want somebody to tell mm. me what it all says. Um, you mentioned Spike Milligan and I was just wondering
0: what um, influence those kinds of comedians had because they were, were so interesting in the sounds of words, weren't they? I mean, I definitely my, my one memory of Spike Milligan is that, as you say, I don't know how, much, how often I've heard him read yeah. poetry, but even in his humour there's a lot of nonsense and rhymes, yes. isn't there?
4: Yeah, um, I did actually do a, a performance with him at the Almeida Theatre okay. actually some years ago. Um, and and they're just sort of they're daft aren't they I Mm. mean it's daft Um, and so to see so that was a good thing to sort of be influenced by that poetry can be daft John Cooper Clarke that poetry can be pop Mm. Seamus Heaney that poetry can make the word have an amazing weight so I think those three things um, uh, if if you can get all those you can't always get them in one thing, but those daft pop, weighty daft pop.
0: Yeah, is it a particularly British thing to be so daft with poetry? Because I I definitely didn't get that sense in Scandinavia, but that's probably my only other experience other than British Uh, poetry. No, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if
4: it is particularly. There's the Kurt Schwitters thing that Michael Horowitz does about the sneezing. Have you ever heard that? No. And it's it's, it's a lot of poem about sneezing. And that's kind of... um, got a daftness about mm. We, we, are, <laughs> um, are said to be a eccentric lot of people, those on this island, aren't we? Island, that's reason, islanders, it has maybe to do with islanders yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's a number of senses human. I mean, when I went to the Poetry Festival, I think it was Charles, who was one of the originators of that festival, said to me, because I was saying about them being you know, because as you know, there's something of quite cerebral, some of the poetry that is there. And and I was sort of talking about placing myself, how, do, how am I placed alongside such things? And he said, There's not poetry, there's poetries. And it was such an enlightening thing to be told. Mm. And then there's not humour, oh, the <laughs> there's humours. The humours, there's four <laughs> of them.
0: <laughs> Part of the sort of founding idea of this podcast series was to not claim to be an expert on anything mm. and I'm hoping to show that I'm trying to sort of learn about poetry myself and it, it's quite a revelation to me when I first realised, when I first went to I think when I went to fairly decent sized reading and then I saw people doing all kinds of different stuff in the same room because I, I knew there were different styles but I just felt felt like you, if you wanted to do that particular thing you had to go over there and, mm. and this particular yeah. style belonged in that but it, it's quite refreshing but it isn't it is to a certain degree, but you, most places are quite open to.
4: Well, somebody asked me last night about um, what did I think was the definition of a performance poetry. He was a poet himself in Canterbury, um, did and did he think it was a delineated space? And did he did I think it did I think it was a justified title at all? And wasn't all poetry just as you're saying all melds in? And I did say that there are there's some things that are a bit of both but there are certain things that are like i think the kurt schwitter's sneezing poem mm. is a poet piece to be performed yes, and there are yeah. pieces that are to be performed but that doesn't mean and this is why i said to the chat last night that that doesn't mean that it has to be on one level so it can be ambiguous
0: actually when you were talking about performing style leading up to meeting you today i was, i refresh my memory reading some of your Writing and I also found there's um, an old BBC schools program on YouTube.
4: that you yeah. did. is it called English Time? English Time. English Time. I didn't know. I mean, I don't know all the things that are on. So is it? Uh, it's what, in three parts. You can't was, find yeah. it. I mean, I oh, just really? came across yeah. it completely. Oh, that was really it, was really. it was really lovely doing that yeah. with Nigel. I did that with him. That's Claire right, yeah, Elstow yeah. produced it. Um,
0: it must be quite old because it's, yeah, it was old, it's, yeah. Well, no, the YouTube clip as well because it's. Of a period where you could only upload eight minutes at a time, oh, right. so it's in three sections. Yeah. Oh, so right. you yeah. can sort of date it yeah, as yeah. to when it was yep. uploaded that way. There was a comment you made in there about sort of trying to defy people's expectations in terms of performance, and if they expected comedy, you perhaps go a bit drier. Is that something you still do, and why? Why was it important?
4: Well, you got to keep yourself on your toes as well. So if you're just sort of going to go about thinking I'll challenge people's expectations, you're not challenging your own because you'll. The expectation is always, I'm going to challenge their, somebody else's expectations. You've got to be wary. Sometimes you can so sometimes do that. Last night was an interesting thing. I, I did a bit of sitting down and a bit of... Sta- I just had a mic for standing up because it's a quite a big stage. So there was one mic to the side and then there was a chair and table and then mic, two mics there, um, one for the mandolin. When I went over to the stand standing up mic, I'd been a bit dry, as you might say. And then I started to do some of the brother-in-law poems, which you might say are a bit livelier and, and actually almost a bit stand up here. And it was interesting having that actual physical delineation of stand-up stand up poetry and sit-down poetry. <laughs> yes, yeah.
0: I think I wanted to get on to talk about the comedy side of things and, and linking it in with the music as well, because on that English Time programme as well, you yeah. talk about the importance of uh, lyrical writing yeah. enabling you to... Find an easier way to, well, not, perhaps not an easier way to rhyme, but a more deliberate way to rhyme in bending words in the same way that you would fit use to fit to a melody.
4: Well, the comed, well, comedic things um, can be a, a well placed, well, a necessary. You can say a necessary when the com, when the comedy is necessary, when it underlines, when it emphasizes. Can have you know the, the uses of comedy? There, again, there are many make people laugh <laughs> but I, I saw Theatre Complicité in 1984 I think it was and they did um, I think the show was called A Minute Too Late and it was a show about dying somebody who had died and there was and it was there was great touchingness in it but it was some wonderful 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 comedy mm. and so that would I would say that was an influence as well seeing that both sides of the coin. I think the reason I
0: kept thinking of, not just because of obviously the kind of poems you write and the deliberate jokes often involved in them, but the the deliberate breaking of rhyme schemes as well, yeah. it seems it's a really comedic yeah, tool, isn't it? Like yeah, but, a, you, but
4: again, if you keep doing that, then it's expected, so you can't <laughs> yes, keep no, doing exactly that.
0: Yeah, I'd be
4: really interested to
0: know how you first got started, whether it was mm. through music or through how how you
4: got going? music certainly, I was always I always sang before I played. So I was in a choir in Luton, and I loved to sing in church. And I used to go around singing a Christmas on my own, singing carols, and I'd sing the whole four verses. Okay. And a lot of them I actually knew by heart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you got your money's worth, and and I used to come home with pocket. I did pockets full of money. So the singing was always important. And I, w- I did love the little the poetry that I was exposed to. I loved it. I loved the playground rhymes. Um, there was one about the television programmes at the time. Miss, um, Bronco Lane had a pain, so they sent for Wagon Train. Wagon Train was no good, so they sent for Robin Hood. Robin Hood killed a man, so they sent for Big Cheyenne. Big Cheyenne was having tea, so they sent for Laramie. Laramie lost his cargo, so they sent, sent for Wells Fargo. And I think it went on. And that being a populist, that's populist, isn't it? I think that was quite an exceptional thing, actually, at the time, to have a, a rhyme that was about something cultural that we knew as kids. Um, now that's a big part of, that c- cultural comment has become a big part of poetry, mm. or of some poetry.
0: Um, another thing that was you mentioned on, but uh, the English Time program was about how you felt you were. How did he put it? More of a like an observational poet rather than writing about feelings. Is that? Uh, well, I think maybe that maybe that comes changed. back to the comment you just made.
4: Well, because, maybe that's yeah. changed a little bit. Actually, my brother says uh, he, somebody was saying something to me to, me, to him about me, and uh, I don't know whether they were saying he, he's not as funny as he used to be or something But he said, this. I don't know what they said, but he said he's more. Con- it's more considered what he write, he's yeah. writing at the moment. Yeah. Um, um, so I think there is that I think may, does that come with age I don't know mm. but there is and I guess expressing emotional uh, emotional things Somebody's, I said I, I was talking to somebody the other night, and I said about how at the lyric Hammersmith we did this thing about English English culture, and we had a lot of things about Morris dancing, and we had deck chairs in the sandpit, and um, and those things you've not, they're solely English, but you put your head through oh, it on yes, the seaside, yes, you know. Yes, yes. So the thing was that it was a celebration of uh, an idea, as all let's say it just, it's, it's just an an idea of English culture, and so and I said to the, I said to Benita, she's a. Uh, a, a publicist. There we are, give the publicist the publicity. <laughs> and um, I said, we gave everybody a, a, a hankie. And she said, and then you made them cry. And we, we actually didn't. But what, what a beautiful th- a thought, isn't it? Mm. We, it was to make a to make a, uh, a rabbit with one one ear. That was what the reason why. We, and also because of the hankies and Morris dancing. But what a beautiful thought to give the audience his hankies. And then to make them cry.
0: You suddenly made me think of clowning then.
4: Mm. Reading, I
0: can't remember the exact, my memory's not that good, I can never remember titles of poems and stuff, but reading your work during uh, last week, there's a lot of longing in, it seemed to be, when you're talking about like this, you know, some of the childhood mm. poems and stuff, and especially about sort of um, unattainable love and that, yeah. that kind of feeling. This act of like trying to get people to laugh at the situation, but then draw them in enough, mm-hmm. you know, is the the hanky. The, the thing, overthinking is completely, yeah. but like the, over, the the hanky being the, the joke or the gesture,
4: and then what does, is sharing the emotion. Well, yeah, well, I suppose it is, yeah. isn't it? There is a there is a, a joke, it, but, but I thought it was just so, it's it really is. Yeah. You're right. I see it truly as clowning, yes, because the clown you see a, the sadness in the clown, but there is something because it's the clown has a costume and the clown has props, and yeah. so the hanky is a prop. So that there is a vaudeville. There's this lovely song by the demolition decorators called uh, We Are Holy Vaudevillains. It's a very, very beautiful song. Mm. So um, so they, they were very poetic in their songs. Um, and one attempts to be that.
0: Actually, I think that might be where I'm linking it in my, in my mind at the moment. But I was going to move on to asking you, because obviously you're still gigging a lot and see, you must see a lot of younger poets coming along. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering whether... It might come through pressure, but there's too much of a fashion maybe to give too much immediately, you know. It, and I'm not saying that I don't yeah. want everyone doing yeah. the same style, but yeah. if we give everything immediately when we go on stage, what part do the audience play in that interaction? You know,
4: why um, can't you give loads and then they? Why can't you give loads?
0: No, obviously you can give a lot, but I'm wondering about what the role that the audience play in that. You know, um, well, and yeah.
4: when we were working with Soapbox Theatre, when I was starting out in Forest Gate, we used to have loads of joining in stuff because I was, the first company I worked for was Interaction, and that's always been in my stuff, interactive stuff. And also, because I worked on the street, you had to get the, the audience to be involved and um, engaged. But when we were working in the soapbox, I carried on that interactive thing. And then we'd get them rowing the boat to America and all the kids would help you row the boat because we were going to America. And they'd always have some part to play, and which came out of the thing called the game play, which was a thing that um, interaction started. The drama advisor, Alan Black for Redbridge, having seen our show, said, it's fantastic all this particip- participation you do, but you can get them to participate emotionally as well. So it's not e- exactly an answer to what you, no, no, you, what you were saying, it. yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. it's in this area of the thing. So anyway, but going back to what you were saying, you get on stage, you get you do loads and loads and loads and loads. Yeah, so the answer to that, I suppose, is shut up sometimes. No, I and, 100% agree with that. And no. just leave a, leave a space. Mm. So that, I guess that is it, and then, and then start again.
0: <laughs> I, I wonder if it comes from, like because I suppose you could argue that now, the way of um, reaching out to people, you don't necessarily need to get out on the streets. You can have a YouTube channel, you can reach people globally. But I suppose in that sense, if you've only got a camera in front of you, mm. you do have to, I suppose you don't have to, but you're more inclined, perhaps, to give everything because you're not getting any sort of immediate response. And maybe it's sort of grown out of that. this You wouldn't necessarily you wouldn't leave a gap for it, a camera.
4: Yeah, it's interesting, actually, you saying that because... It made me realise that my all my answer there had been to do with having an audience in front yes, of me, yeah. even though I have done ra- radio and TV, nowhere near as much as I've done live. Mm. But I was completely framing my answers in a, in that way.
0: Yeah, I think that that's. It took me a long while to get to that point, but I think that's maybe what I was trying to get to. And I think that's why I wanted to talk so much about the influences of comedians and stuff, because I presume most of your, or if not all of your influences in terms of the spoken word not, yeah. not if we ignored the yeah. written written word but the spoken word would have been in front of even radio programs you know it's, yeah. it's only fairly recently that radio program, programs have stopped having audiences yeah. as much as they used to mm-hmm. you know so there was always that even when you heard when it was just a voice on the radio you would still hear the laughter and you would you would hear the pauses of the the entertainer waiting for the interaction with the audience you? yeah uh yeah so i've just got my on the clock We've probably spoken for long enough for today. We'll just finish with a couple of readings I think.
4: Okay. More Love in Luton. At ten I loved Jane, but was frightened to say, and I suffered frustration throughout the school day. I kicked at her ankles, it rankled and bought. Attention, but not the affection I sought. The strength of my feelings I couldn't admit, and out of my weakness I acted the git, and my acting was good. Then Wojtek appeared in a neighbouring seat. He said that her writing was lovely and neat. He said that her being was really complete, and this she preferred to the ends of my feet. Wojtek and she became chummy and close. It churned up my tummy. It made me morose. Back at the bungalow, lacking delight, I blurted the hurting at dinner one night. I said how I loved her and it wasn't right, explaining how Wojtek was deeply preferred. As soon as I'd spoken, my ear got a pull from me, Dad, who said, wait till your plate isn't full before you start speaking. I answered, it's not plate, Dad, it's mouth. And he said, oh, yes, sorry, John, I forgot. So letting my family in on the grief didn't provide a great deal of relief. Now looking back on the burden and pain of unspoken feeling congealing for Jane, I feel that some justice was done for the way I treated my sister to loads of dismay. I was very unchristian, but still went to church, a fan of the man who was pinned to the perch. I served on the altar, spoke Latin aloud, and so did my brother. My mother was proud of us, knelt in our white and our black. I held the incense, my brother the slack of the thing with the holes that created the stench, and back home my father tried teaching him French. My father's first language, my father's first son, and one extra lesson when praying was done. But one day the Sunday tradition was broke. Why, I'm not sure, but my dad never spoke in the language thereafter, except for the day when his mother came over and then went away. We had no exposure to uncles and aunts. My dad's only friends were his God and his plants. Now, subsequently, I feel justice isn't done saying that about dad. So this is called Straightening the Record, and this is in this is in this new book here, Peace, Love and Potatoes, beautifully, beautifully produced by Profile Books. Straightening the record. 9.95. Straightening the record. We had no exposure to uncles or aunts. My dad's only friends were his God and his plants. As I read this aloud from the page of my book on stage at the Leeds City Varieties, I felt the need to vary, for my lines were contrary to the truth. My dad's only friends were his God and his plants, and the Petleys, I added, and I'd swear I heard a grateful sigh from somewhere in that Yorkshire night as I put to write that easy lie, doing justice to that other mum and dad so loved by my own, whom mum and dad in turn were loved by, David and Frida Petley. When David was courting Frieda, he came to pick her up with his car heated up by a brick, and the two of them warmed my mum and dad through to the quick, to the soul, to the gear stick. Um, thanks very much. Thank you. Kingdom Comes. Isambard Kingdom dug down, to Wapping from Rotherhithe Town. He tunnelled the Thames and this unearthly gems, a jewel in Isambard's crown.
2: Although he's actually better known for his hat. Up the hatters.
3: Oh!